Welcome to Woody Online. My name's Stuart, I'm one of the leaders here at Woody and today is the third part in our series on the book of Amos. This is another passage with a huge amount in it, similar to last week, but I'm aiming to be a little bit briefer. So let's start by reading in Amos chapter 2 from verse 4 and we're going to read up to verse 2 of chapter 3. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. I destroyed the Amorite before them, though he was tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you for 40 years in the desert to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your sons and Nazarites from among your young men. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes grain, as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Hear this word, the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen, of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. So the net has closed in. Last week, we looked at the word that Amos brought to the six nations that surrounded Israel and Judah. Now we have two more oracles. The first directed at Judah, the southern kingdom. Again, this would have further engaged the listener, their local rival, the other part of their family, essentially their sibling state that they've broken away from. And then the second oracle to Israel. We're now hitting home to the listener that Amos was directly addressing. So what can we learn from this passage, particularly as it addresses the people of God, which is now us as the church. 
I'm going to start with those last few verses that are from the start of chapter 3. The fundamental, fundamental issue here is that they have devalued their chosenness as a nation and considered it now as some form of divine favouritism. There's a misunderstanding of their status. They're not just chosen as God's teacher's pet. So after the oracles to both Judah and Israel, this final element is to the whole nation, the whole family, the whole people of God. And whereas last week we focused on conscience, this week the focus is on the people that have the revelation of God. God has made himself known to them. And it reminded me as I was preparing of the phrase, with great privilege or with great power comes great responsibility. A phrase that's been used by or attributed, attributed to all manner of people, Voltaire, Churchill, Spider-Man. But the genuine original, I think, comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 48. It's in the parable of the faithful steward. And it says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. These are the people God has made himself known to, has made his law known to, who have entered into covenant with him, and therefore there is a different expectation. So we have these two charges, and it's the same pattern as we saw last week, for three sins, even for four, addressing the completeness of their sin, but identifying something that was the final straw. And there's a slight difference in what is addressed to Judah and Israel. To Judah, Amos sets out the point of principle, and then to Israel looks at how that is being worked out in practice. So for Judah, the first, they've rejected the law of the Lord. As I said, they're moving on from sins against the voice of conscience to disregarding the voice of revelation. And that's actually their central privilege as part of being God's chosen people, to hear from God. And instead of the law of the Lord, they were led astray by their ancestors, by man, by the traditions of man in following false gods. There are competing voices saying this is the way of truth and it's the same today. We have the world, we have man saying this is right and we have scripture. And one of the quotes that I really stood out to me as I was preparing was by someone called Pusey. It said, the popular error of one generation becomes the axiom of the next. What's an axiom, I hear you ask? It's a principle that is accepted as truth without proof. And he goes on to say, the children canonize the errors of their fathers. So what you have is something that may be new, and kind of doubted when it's first 
brought into the public consciousness through the generations becomes established as a norm, as a tradition, becomes fully accepted. And we see that. Some of that we might describe as social progress. But we must be cautious to not listen to what man says is social progress alone. But we must test it against God's word. Use scripture as the plumb line. This word from Amos to God's people, to us as the church, is a reminder that we must be listening to the divine voice, the law of the Lord, to scripture. We must base our lives on an understanding of the word of God and not just accept established tradition or established norms. In verse 4, it talks about the law and decrees. And the commentators point out that there's two different meanings here. The law in this setting is not about legislation. That's what the decrees part means. But actually, it's more about instruction. The relationship between the teacher and the pupil. There is a personal relationship between the Lord that draws us close to impart his truth to the follower, to us. And then there is the decrees and the statutes that were carved out in stone tablets. And that was representative of the fact there's an unchangeable and unperishable truth. And it's these two things together that create the potential for the obedient and fully lived life. Life in fellowship with God, but resting on a rock-like foundation. And it also highlights that it begins on the inside with fellowship with God, and when we reject that, we end up with wrong practices on the outside. We follow the lies of man talks about being led astray and then when it talks about being followed in some translations the word is walked it's about the practical outworking in our lives and that close relationship with God and between the truth and practice is what leads to a life well lived so with Judah we've seen this kind of unpacked about the principle and then with Israel Amos moves on to the practice. And remember, if you've listened to the first two in this series, Israel broke away some 150 years earlier and Jeroboam was the king and set in place new shrines for people to worship instead of worshipping Yahweh in the temple. And they've had 150 years of these new traditions so they're well established and embedded in society. If you think back to those quotes I just made, they've become axioms, they've become norms. But God has made his truth known. They already knew there was a different way. And he's drawn near to them to make life possible. So what Amos does is he points out in verses six to eight, Israel's sins. They've sinned against others. 
They've sinned against the revelation they have from God, against divine commands, and they've sinned against the grace that has been extended to them. So briefly, they've sinned against others. They, it says here, they were seeking material possessions. They were oppressing others, the weak, and they were pro promoting self-advantage and their own self-importance. It's the same sins that were pointed out to the surrounding heathen nations that we looked at last week. They failed to act with common decency to other human beings. Those things that were pointed to those who had the voice of conscience are now being levelled at those that actually had divine revelation from God. Then we have sins against the divine commands. In verse 7, it talks about father and son using the same girl, and that is reference to the whole male part of the population. They were all failing, and they were all womanizing. And I mentioned in the first week how this religion in the northern kingdom, their religious traditions were formed around sexual practices. And in the minds of the people, and we're several generations in, there is religious significance to their actions. It was an act of worship. But they drifted away from what God had actually revealed to them. Divine revelation had been pushed below the desire for self-gratification. So for us, we need to make sure that our worship is aligned to what God has revealed. So perhaps in a small way, and just as an encouragement for us at Woody, our recent church meeting where we decided to change the way we worship on a Sunday morning is an act of obedience where rather than choosing our personal preference, we've chosen what we believe God has been saying to us. And here we have a nation that had been given God's law, but they were living according to Canaanite or worldly principles and practices, that which they had been warned to avoid. And they had eroded over time the instructions God had given. Again, we must test what in our society is godly and what is not. And thirdly, there were sins against grace. In verse 8, it talks about at the altar in the house of God. And it mentions two things, garments taken in pledge. What's that all about? Well, uh, you can go back to e Exodus and see the regulations for this. But what would happen is you could take the cloak of someone as security against a loan. But you could only take it during the day. It had to be returned at night as it was used as a blanket. To hold on to it would be unmerciful. It would be thoughtless at best. And it was offensive to the compassionate nature of God. And it's speaking to the fact that we are to reflect God's mercy, not contradict it. We are to pass it on. How can anyone expect to plead for mercy from God if they do not offer it themselves? 
The second element is to drink wine taken as fines. And instead of fellowship with God, they are drinking wine and lying down with prostitutes. Again, reference to their uh, religious practices. And it was not wine that was theirs to drink either. Fines in those days were paid to the injured party. I guess a kind of compensation. So it suggests that there was some kind of financial manipulation to extort from people that shouldn't have been giving it to them. The principles here really are that we need to be right with man to be right with God. And in response to what God has done for us, we should reflect that in the way we treat others. Then in the next few verses, verses 9 to 11, Amos sets out a reminder of the redeeming acts of God. That God, by his sole action, had given them victory. He had redeemed them and led them, even during the 40 years in the wilderness, when they were being disciplined for sins of rebellion. And he'd given them their promised inheritance. He had never forsaken his people He was faithful by word and deed. And then in verse 12, it sets out that they had coldly rejected it. They commanded the prophets not to prophesy. There was a direct rejection of God and his revelation after all that he has done for them. They had the opportunity for revelation from God and they willfully ignored it. And that is what the fourth sin of Israel is all about. They've rejected the revelation of God. So then we have a number of verses that are passing on the judgment that they will be crushed by their enemies. And what's going to happen here is God's people have forfeited his favour As we talked about in previous weeks, it's not about God breaking his covenant, but removing his favour and disciplining and punishing them. Their chosenness, their election is not at stake. But he wants to bring greater holiness. He wants to bring them back to what they agreed. And in Leviticus chapter 26, it talks about the vengeance of the covenant. And that whole chapter is interesting because it starts with a whole section setting out the reward for obedience. And this was the covenant that they entered into. And the second part then looks at the punishment for disobedience. And it teaches that actions have consequence. And this is clear that they are forfeiting the favour, the reward and opening themselves up to punishment and discipline. They were told what would happen if they didn't listen. They agreed to what would happen, and they've rejected what they agreed. It's not some arbitrary punishment that's come from nowhere, but part of the agreed covenant. And in verses 13 to 16, what God is pointing out is that you will not be able to save yourself there will be an enemy much stronger than them. And neither their inherent ability, in verse 14, it talks about being swift and strong, 
nor any acquired skill. In verse 15, it talks about the archer, those who are fleet of foot and the horsemen, nor any outstanding qualities. In verse 16, it talks about the bravest. None of these things will be enough to save them. So at the core, we have a group of people that were unable to save themselves. On their own, they are powerless. But God has given them all they need to be saved. Yet rather than see this reflected in their human relationships, there's been a self-seeking desire that leaves others being mistreated, trampled over, and they're lacking in compassion. And that's the same for us. We have all fallen short. We have sinned, made wrong choices, offended God, and we cannot save ourselves, whether that be by skill or bravery or any other matter. But God has provided all that we need to be saved in Jesus. We just need to accept it. And in response, we should expect to see our lives changed as we reflect the grace we have received in the way we treat others. We, as with the Israelites, are not saved for moral complacency, but to be a witness of what God has done in us and for us. And so we see here, God will not break the covenant, but he is willing to bring punishment on disobedience in order that the covenant is kept to bring discipline and actually to restore Israel. So to conclude and trying to bring out the lessons for us. We've got Israel, we've had 150 years of tradition It's interesting that the other week we had Woody's 142nd AGM. Now, I'm not suggesting we've been going on the wrong path for all of those years, but there's a challenge for us to continually ensure we are aligned to what God has revealed in Scripture and in practice. That we need to hold ourselves to account for our actions We need to avoid complacency with sin. God is not in the business of undoing his covenants. He doesn't make someone his child and then unadopt them. But he disciplines those he loves. Because sin is an affront to God. He brought judgment on those nations that did not even have divine revelation, only conscience. Here we have seen how those with the revelation, and that is us today, are held to an even higher standard. The nearer God places anyone to his own light, the more malignant, that is evil in nature, bringing death invasive is the choice of darkness. That was one of the quotes from the commentators. We are closer to the light. So if we try to introduce darkness, it's even worse. Because ultimately God has extended his favour to us. There is mercy. There is grace. And our response to that should not be complacency. Should not be to take it for granted. 
should not be to please ourselves, but to seek to walk in the fullness of all that he has provided. That in response to mercy, we are merciful. In response to his compassion, we are compassionate. In response to grace, we are gracious. To respond to him in worship that is measured by the way we treat others in principle and practice. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have made yourself known to us. You have revealed yourself to us in scripture. You have revealed yourself to us in Jesus. You have revealed yourself to us by the person of the Holy Spirit. Would you forgive us wherever we have failed to walk in line with that revelation? Would you forgive us where we have taken it for granted and been complacent? Would you forgive us where we have misunderstood what it is to be adopted in your family? We thank you for your revelation. We thank you that you provide everything for us to be saved, to know you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he did for us. Would you help us that out of the overflow of the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the love that you have shown to us, that we would be gracious and merciful and compassionate and loving to all those that we come into contact with. As we looked at last week, whether those be our enemies, our rivals, those in our workplace, those in our families, those that we know, those that are weaker than us, those who are strangers. Would we be honouring to what you have done for us in the way that we live? In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to know any more about us, you can join us on a Sunday morning at Woody or get in touch via social media. All the details will be on the screen in a minute. Have a great week. Take care.